I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi there, you are listening to the Third Coast Pocket Conference, where your next great story begins. On this show, we share sessions from past Third Coast conferences, featuring the world's top radio makers and podcasters. I'm your host, Dennis Funk. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that this will be our last pocket conference for a few weeks, but we'll be back in early December and we'll return with sessions from the 2017 Third Coast Conference. If you haven't had a look at who will be speaking this year, head over to thirdcoastfestival.org and check out the list of sessions. And if you happen to be coming to Chicago for this year's conference, don't forget to get yourself some tickets to the Fest. Third Coast's two-week-long festival of live podcast events. Some of those, like Code Switch, Love in Radio and Longform, will be happening during the weekend and will be unofficially kicking off the conference on November the 8th with a live version of our sister podcast, ReSound. It will be a live narrative mixtape featuring performances by Phoebe Judge of Criminal, 99% Invisible's Roman Mars and many others. So go to thefestchicago.org to check out those events if you're in town or if you just want to make a spontaneous trip to Chicago. Okay, back to business. This week we're featuring a session from the very first Third Coast Conference back in 2001 called Taking Risks in Radio. This panel, moderated by Arizona-based producer Joan Schumann, asked questions about the consequences of taking risks and approaching audio in unconventional ways. Joining Joan to answer these questions were radio legend Scott Carrier and Priya Ramu, formerly of the CBC programme Outfront. As you listen, please remember that this session was recorded before podcasts were a regular part of our vocabulary, but taking risks in audio still poses a lot of the same challenges today. Okay, here's Taking Risks in Radio. So, um, I was thinking about how to start this this panel, and... um, I thought, well, we're all half asleep. I count myself in that category. And uh, there's been a lot of listening and uh, listening with your eyes shut. And a lot of us wake up to the sound of radio. Um, I don't anymore. I used to. There were too many people that I knew, and I didn't want them in my dreams, so I stopped doing that. But um, here at the hotel, I've had to wake up to radio. And the other day, I woke up to you know, NPR, the news, everything going on in the world, and I immediately hit it because I didn't want to hear it anymore. But... Well, it, it was based on Truman Capote's book. It was in black and white. It was really stark, very starkly uh, 
reminiscent of what probably happened in that farmhouse, and I just remember it being really dark and eerie and scary, and、um, I was hooked. I was a fan. Don't talk to strangers. Don't take candy from people you don't know. Lock your car door as soon as you get in. Check the back seat of your car before you drive away. If you're in a bad neighborhood, lock your car door. My name is Louis Altusser. I, I'm a writer. I taught philosophy and, and writing at the、uh, at the Ecole Normale in Paris for 35 years、uh, until 1980 when,、uh, when I left. Uh, when I left,、um, well, when my wife Elaine. Died. I know you're not interviewing any other murderers in your series,、um, but you see, I'm not a murderer per se. I don't remember committing this act. I, I was merely a.、Uh, how do you say、uh, an innocent bystander? I don't think he knew what he was doing. He certainly was in the worst state I've ever seen him in. A, a case of a, a case of true dementia,、um, the deepest melancholia. The two weeks prior, I saw him and Elaine in my office separately. Of course,、uh, she was barely holding on. He, he was lucid, and, and、uh, I wanted to put him in the hospital, but Elaine had to be confused. That piece is called Complicité, and、um, I did a series in 1988 in, at KUSP in Santa Cruz, thanks to Ray Price, the former program director.、Uh, I walked into the station and said, "Ray, I have this series of pieces. I'd like you to play them, but I don't want you to announce that they're coming on the air. I just want you to fit them into the schedule and have the programmers play them, and we'll just go from there." And he said, "Sure, no problem. Really like the idea." I was shocked, so I then had to go and actually produce the pieces because、um, I only had the idea at that point. And、um, the point being that、um, it's it's a good thing to interrupt people's、um, expectations of the familiar NPR voice or CBC voice or wherever it is that you hear that familiar voice and interrupt it with something unusual, something、uh, that they would never expect. And so that's what we want to talk about for the next hour and a half or hour and fifteen minutes.、Um, First, we'd like to just briefly, each of us, give you a sense of what we think is、uh, a risk. And Priya, can you start with that? Sure.、Um, well, for those of you who don't know what Outfront is, I did hand out a couple of pamphlets, but I'll be very brief.、Um, it's much as Joan has said, we do have a mandate to take risks. What we are is a program for Canadians, can- Canadians from all across the country, to tell their own stories. We're driven by freelance material. We wouldn't be on the air without it. These are not Canadians who are aspiring、um, full-time radio producers. They don't freelance. They're not independent producers. They're just folk 
folk with stories to tell, and what we do is we help them do that. We teach them how to make radio, everything from doing all the recording to the structuring to the story development to the actual product at the end at the end of the day. So it is by far uh, one of the coolest jobs to have at CBC Radio because it's different every single day, and you never know. You literally never know what you're going to hear from day to day. So um, within that context, we are also charged with pushing, pushing what's conventional pushing out of traditional ways of presenting storytelling, given the fact that we're dealing with first-time producers, first-time freelancers, and first-time radio storytellers. So we have a lot of leeway and a lot of opportunity to try new stuff, and we actually take that really seriously, and we spend a lot of time doing that. So within that framework um, of what our show is about, um, I would define risks in a couple of different ways in, in terms of how we do our jobs every day. One is challenging ourselves as producers. That's probably the biggest one, um, one of the biggest ones. Uh, all of us come from, as you heard, news and current affairs backgrounds. We've been working within the system for most of our careers. And so we find that if we don't push ourselves and demand more from ourselves, from every level of decision-making of the piece, from the choices that we make um, of which story to do, to how the story is going to sound, to the perspective taken in the story, to the kinds of treatments and techniques we use, um, we spend a lot of time pushing our it's not good enough to just go with the first option that we come up with. Um, so to me, the most important thing is to make ourselves uncomfortable, to push, us, push ourselves as producers into ground where we're not quite sure what's going to happen. We don't quite know how it's going to go over, and is it really going to work? That's when we know we're on the right track, when we're producing our pieces. I think one of the most important things from a programming standpoint on our program is that we fail a lot. We fail all the time. Um, taking risks means failure. It means you're going to fail. The issue for me is that you fail, you put it on anyway, and then you stand behind it proudly. And that's how we operate on our show. So it's not enough to just say, oh, it didn't work, and you shelve it. You ha I put it on, and, and then I'm actually proud of it, and we promote it just as heavily as any other program that's won awards or whatever. So I think that's key. I think that's absolutely key if you're going to get into this kind of work, and that's how we operate. Um, just one last point is, again, it sort of speaks to the first point I made about ourselves as producers, loosening up control of our show, giving away control of our show, giving it, putting it back in the hands of our producers, of our freelancers, to determine the direction of their stories and their product. Um, and so from a big picture kind of standpoint, for me as this, as the person who decides what goes on the air, that can be actually literally giving up that airtime that we have. Our program is 15 minutes long. It comes on once a day, and we don't have a host or anything, so the person who's doing the show of that day takes over that 15-minute slot. So I've started more and more just giving over that time to freelancers who've never done radio before, taking in a final CD product that they've mixed in their home and sticking it on the radio. That's sort of the biggest way I can do it in a smaller scale. It's to when we're working one-on-one -on -one with our freelancers, just let go. Just let go. Our immediate impulse is to get in there and help them and maybe go out with them while they're recording because we know they don't know what they're doing. And But for us, it's been, it's been quite a challenge to just let them do what they want to do, let them gather what they want to gather. And never yet has it been that what they have gathered is worse than what we would have. In fact, it's always better. So <laughs> I've learned that the more we are our hands off in the production process, the better for the, for the final show. So that's how we operate. Great. And Scott, <clears throat> what's your definition of taking a risk? Um, well, I, I mean, I'd like to start by saying that it is a risk, I believe, to work in public radio because uh, to choose to work in public radio, the pay is bad. The 
job security is not so good. There are no benefits if you're an independent to speak of, and the chances of supporting yourself, let alone a family, are not very good. So why do we do it? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I think it's probably all of us share this it's because there's something about it that we love. And at some point in our lives, we heard something on the radio that opened our hearts and we were pulled towards it. We followed it, perhaps never to go back. And because it's about love, that's the essential risk to me because you're risking rejection, scorn, humiliation. <laughs> you're risking having your heart smashed. And yeah, that's, I mean, other than that. <laughs> And then if that does happen, you can always go into television, I suppose. But, okay, um, Scott, you On didn't. a smaller level, yeah. I mean, personally, I think the, <laughs> the risk is, uh, for me, the way I work, this, because the only way I seem to be able to work is I don't know what the story is when I start out. I mean, I have an idea, I have a general feeling that this, this is going to work, but um, I don't know what tape I'm going to get. I don't know who I'm going to meet sometimes anyway and it's a process of recording the tape collecting the tape and then really not knowing what's going to happen until really almost when the stories do the deadline and um, so that's a that's a chancy thing it's kind of like fishing in a way where you have to expect that a certain percentage of your efforts are going to be wasted or come to nothing and just hope and pray that something, you know, that you're going to get something. And, yeah, that's about it. When we were talking <clears throat> among ourselves and thinking about what a definition of a risk was, um, the only thing I could come up with, well, many things, but one of the things that I focus a lot in my work is the form. What is it going to sound like? And on the other side, obviously the content is going to come through. I tend to have a sense of what it's going to be. But for me, the form is very important. So you, what you just heard when I said hit it, it was a little premature. But, <laughs> but that was perfect because um, the idea, particularly of that series that I did that was called Acoustic Mining in, in Santa Cruz, did fail, as a matter of fact. I did 12 pieces, and six of them went on the air because the programmers at the wonderful strong, long-lived community station in Santa Cruz had a problem with playing two minutes of a sound piece interrupting their music. What is that thing people wouldn't even, some people wouldn't play it. I remember Ray running into the studio saying, you have to play that piece. You ha it's on the schedule. You have to play it. So thinking about form, but secondarily thinking about um, interrupting conventional uh, programming That obviously can be done on a local level. I highly doubt it will ever be done on a national level. Um, so for me, the definition of, of a risk is about form and also at some point somehow interrupting um, the conventions of the programming schedule, if it possible, on a local level. Um, so now what we want to do is, um, is play a lot of tape and... Uh, Feel free to come up to the microphone and ask us questions about it. Um, who wants to start? Do you want to start with a piece of yours? Yeah, okay. Um, as far as not knowing what's going to happen when you begin, 
I think this tape's a good example of that. It's a work in progress called foreignladies.com. And it's a story about a man who has a nervous breakdown and ultimately ends up getting some electroshock therapy. In this section, the guy's name's Olaf. He's quit his cushy television produ production job to become a songwriter, and he's moved to Austin, Texas, and he's staying with a friend there who has a two-year-old daughter named Coco. Uh, and I think that's probably enough of an introduction, and we talk about it after we play it. Go ahead. This is Austin's rush hour. It's about 9.01 a.m. And let's just go out into the street here. I'm going to uh, crank the level all the way up to 10 and just let the microphone do the work. Here we go. Howdy. guy in the pickup just waved. Okay, that's rush hour. <laughs> Good morning. How are you? Oh my lord. I was in Boston two days ago and I was walking through a foot of snow and on my way to work where the traffic was all over the place and it's uh, this is something. <laughs> <laughs> I was walking along and I um I looked down and I saw a penny buried halfway in the gravel. I was thinking of this movie we were seeing last night. And uh it was called Clash of the Titans with Mark No 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 Henry Ham Hamlin, Henry Hamlin. I think he was on L.A. Law. And uh, Harry Harry Hamlin, Harry Hamlin was Perseus, and um, the gods threw him down because he was like put in this really bad position. <laughs> he had to get a lot of stuff done, and he was put in this bad position, and he had to crank it out in like two days. Oh, she's hot. But he, um, but he, oh, all right, so, so anyway, Perseus is given all this stuff by the gods, and uh, it's like he's being rewarded for doing the right thing by getting more stuff to do impossible tasks, and that's what, that's what this penny reminded me of, that if I gave it to someone or if I had it, I would double my luck, that's giving it away part, you make it yours, and then you give it back. And if you give it back, that's the end of the fairy tale. Grindy lows were cool when you were two. Grindy lows were cool when you were two. And Hufflepuff and Snit Snit Slytherin. Mm -hmm. 
Grindy lows were cool when you were too. This is a letter to my future. How old will you be today? This is a letter to the future. Here's Coco. This is a letter to your future. Coco, how old are you? Awful puffin' slithering and ringy lows were cool when you were two. Yeah. Alright, well, we're back in 1812 Rockmore. I found a watch. I was trying to figure out what time it was. And I noticed a watch. It was like another gift. Huh. I got a penny and a boat broken watch. How these are going to be helpful, I don't know. The proceeding... Hello? Check. The proceeding was a 45-minute ontology lecture for Coco on 3-13-2001. What do you think of that? Yes. Yeah. All right. Okay. That's what you sounded like when you were two. When Grindy Lows, Grindy Lows and Hufflepuffs were cool, too. Yes. Yes. Um... Yeah, I like that tape because uh, primarily because that first line is like 9.30 a.m. I'm going to go out on the street and see what happens. Turn the microphone all the way up to 10 and let it do the work. That's, to me, that's the essence of um, working in radio. And what happens after that, not much happens, right? I mean, he didn't really talk to anybody. Didn't, not much happened except this song that took shape while I was there and which I think it's a nice song and then the little girl at the end just, I just really like it barely holds together but it holds together in a way that I don't know makes me feel good so Scott I have a question where um, because everybody might be thinking this where are you thinking of presenting this piece uh, I, I'm not working on that. Actually, Larry Massett is uh, working on that with Olaf. Um, he's the one that cut it down from 45 minutes to four. Um, and I don't think he knows where he's going to do it yet. It's a, it is available. You can listen to the... There's probably 10 or 12 different sections uh, in the series describing his breakdown to the point where he has electroshock therapy. And those are available on hearingvoices.com on the web, which is our website, so you can hear it there. I don't know if anybody's going to play it or not. Mm -hmm. I hope somebody does. There's, there's a lot of good stuff in the series. Um, in the back on the table where there's some stuff, I've put some um, sort of a website radio where you can hear Risky Radio hit lists, so you can pick those sheets up. It's by no means exhaustive, but it does have the hearingvoices.com um, URL on it. Um, that is something that, that I think a lot about where are things going to be presented. Um, thinking about that sort of piece will have its airplay on, on line, which has both a, a broad and a limited scope. Um, will it ever get to the airwaves? These are all questions to think about when producing 
radio that is less than the conventional approach to radio. Priya, do you want to play some tape and talk mm-hmm. about? Yeah, well, I'm going to play a, a chunk of tape um, that reflects for me why it's important for us to push ahead and present material that the audience may not be expecting, which speaks to what you were saying earlier. Um, As I was saying, our show's on at 11.45 in the morning, and that's considered, that's sort of coming out of the tail end of what is our prime time listening period on our schedule, where we have the most listeners and where we have our core group of listeners, the traditional CBC listener um, who comes to CBC for a variety of things, maybe not so much this. So um, this is a piece... uh, that uh, what I've also brought, and I'll, I'll speak to it after we listen to it, is some of the response we got to uh, this particular item. It's a guy um, in his mid-20s. His name is Rich Marcella. And as I was saying, all our items are, are created when freelancers are coming to us. So Rich sends us this proposal saying, I want to do a story about making bad art. I live in the burbs, and I make bad art. And so what you're going to hear here is you'll hear our program theme, um, just so you can get a, just a little bit of a better sense what we do, and then it'll launch into just an excerpt of Rich's um, idea of who he is and what he does with himself all day. <laughs> yes, uh, track one, yeah. The following program is a little bit loud, perhaps a touch perverse, and somewhat disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. We thought we'd put a warning. This is Out Front. New voices, her voices, my voice, out front, new visions, my vision, out front, outside, outer limits, out of the ordinary, out of bounds, out there, out front. Hello boys and girls, my name is Friendly Rich, and I like to compose music naked in my parents' basement. I come from a suburban town called Brampton, Ontario. Brampton is like a concrete desert full of identical subdivisions and shopping malls to keep everyone in line. It's no wonder some of us lose our minds. Uh, it's just someone a little bit too happy. <laughs> okay. It's just the new atmosphere. Okay, I mean, this, this is a different atmosphere, not a bar, okay? Okay. If you get like that, we'll ask you to leave. Okay, no problem. Thank you. I'll be clean. That was an excerpt from my upcoming album entitled Brampton. It is an anthropological study of myself, a suburban loser. In my music, I enjoy capturing odd material from everyday life and composing it into a new concept. This next love ballad, for instance, required the help of the Canada geese near the lake where I live. (laughs) 
I don't know what it is about this sad town. On the surface, we're culturally impotent. Whenever I tell someone I'm from Brampton, they automatically assume I do nothing but smoke drugs, contemplate suicide, and make illegitimate children. I've used music as an escape from all that, and I think this ugly art adds a lot to the grand scheme of Canadian culture. Take this next clip from my new album, where my father reminisces about his early childhood growing up in Italy. <laughs> my friends have had their fun with you, you mean? Fun. Well, you can imagine what kind of fun they used to have with cheap, right? Well, they, obviously, uh, we used to, we used to uh, gather with uh, uh, the friends uh, to, to go and, and uh, unite maybe 150 to 200 sheep, take them in the mountains. We were eight, nine years old. I remember having older friends who were maybe 13, 14 years old, and uh, uh, I remember them, uh, you know, experiencing, uh, uh, experiencing sex with, uh, with sheep. <laughs> Never done it myself, but... Okay. <laughs> so... Shame on you, CBC. Shame on you. I'm disheartened that you are helping to promote the rapid decay of our society by promulgating such evil. Do not push the line, caps. Be decent, build up, edify, lift our people up. There is already enough evil in our world without you aiding in its filthy broadcast. So that's a sample of the kind of mail we got to that piece, but we also got this. I was pleased and surprised to hear today's show on suburban loser musicians. It was a risky show by CBC standards, but certainly suited my interests and view of contemporary youth creativity. I'd love to hear more programs and programming like this on CBC. So to me, w playing programs like this and encouraging and promoting and helping to produce uh, voices and perspectives like this um, is important because it challenges our listenership. Um, and in some cases, uh, brings in new listeners. And I think that's our responsibility, as certainly in public broadcasting, is to not simply maintain the status quo, but to challenge what our listeners are used to hearing and raise the bar of what's acceptable on radio. And this is just one example. I got lots more. <laughs> that reminds me of some of the email that I got for acoustic mining. It was only on for six weeks, and I got 20 pieces of email, which if everybody knows in radio, at least on the local level, you don't get any response unless it's bad. And it was all good responses, people saying, I took down your email address, I don't know why, I heard something weird, go across the airwaves, I'm emailing you, thanks, <laughs> something like that. Um, when we think about strange pieces of tape, we usually think, oh, it's going to be on at 4 in the morning, 2 in the morning, midnight, when people are barely awake, so we won't shock anybody. But something like what you're talking about, Priya, putting it on at 11.45 in the, in the morning, um, in, in the case of acoustic mining, it went all day uh, during the week. Um, I think that that's uh, pushing the, the confines of what we're used to. Um, I'll play a piece now that's actually um, aired on uh, Weekend Edition in the morning, uh, Saturday morning, and I got a lot of response from this. This is a piece... Um, I guess I'll play this. Um, it's going to be track six. 
that's called Radio Sound Art. It first appeared on Transom. I sent it to Jay, not really knowing what he was interested in. Actually, I had sent a piece before to Jay and, and gotten this wonderful editorial response to it, and I've shelved that piece because <laughs> it was such an interesting response. But this piece I sent, and he called me and he said, yeah, we're going to put it on, um, sort of a very wonderful deadpan approach. Oh, okay, great, fine. And it went on, and on Transom, it got an enormous amount of response on the on the post. Um, if if people followed it, I don't know if anybody here had followed the post. Um, very interesting response to the work itself and the work that was being described. It's um, it's it's a primer for sound art, um, and then um, Weekend Edition Saturday Morning picked it up and got more response from it as well. Um, it's six minutes or uh, five minutes. You can go ahead and play the whole thing. Well, I think a lot of people who are interested in sound art are people who um, have had a history of, of listening to sounds in a way, in a way, in a maybe uh, you could say like they're just trying to just trying to listen deep more deeply. This man at my work who heard my CD asked me if I was a screamer. <laughs> Because I make a lot of unusual vocal sounds, just like, <laughs> in, <laughs> you know, he's basically making fun. There are different kinds of practitioners who approach being radio artists in different ways. For instance, this piece could be looked at as a radio noir or um, mystery drama radio, but it doesn't do that in a really close, hugging the historical... Then all of a sudden, the sound of a typewriter will come in, and, and then a clock ticking, and then some gunshots and a car crash, and these various things happening that all are kind of tropes of radio drama that people are supposed to be adept at, at picturing, and yet they don't necessarily work, or there's something disjunctive about what's been going on. What's all this Mr. and Miss business? She attempted a smile, but her eyes were murderous. If they remembered him, I might get a Then there's an approach that deals with radio as a technical apparatus. Eric has a, a homemade instrument called the springboard. There's just a bunch of objects, like little pieces of wood and a grill from a you know little oven, and he kind of makes it become alive. And then we realize, well, wait, the, the radio itself is an animistic object because it's like this thing that has this voice and this life inside of it, and you can change it into different stages. It's like there's a world. I wanted to make abstract painting, but I didn't want to make objects anymore. I get really frustrated sometimes. I just want to say, no, it's not video. No, it's not animation. No, it's not music. And I kind of wait in glee to watch people's face get all crinkled up and as they try to figure out when I just say sound art. Sometimes I call cinema it cinema for the, for the ear because then one that I like can they get it? Too, okay, a film, get rid of the visuals. Oh, and that's what you do. And then I say, and then layer about three more narratives on top of that. And then you've got what it is that I do. The term dramaturgy music and audio art. What would have happened if instead of a massive echo? A lot of times when you say sound art and people say, well, what is that? If you think about painters use paint to make art, not to paint houses, well, this is using sound to make art, not to do all the other things we're used to sound doing. Um, 
it, it often takes a couple goes at it for people to, to figure out what you're saying, that sound could have a kind of non-utilitarian function. I've made a point to actually try to translate a place visually, break it down, and then see how I would come up with it in terms of sound. Let's say you have a tree, so let's see, I'm going to need something tall, so I think of a tall sound. And then you have leaves that they move, so you need something that rustles. And I may not necessarily record a tree. I kind of do that. When I did speech acts, the impetus for the piece was the story of these two people who both at various times took vows of silence. The minute I heard that story, I immediately thought of the binding of my voice. What I want to know is what would have happened if instead of giving him this, this massive echo, And if you produce something for radio and you have obscured text or text that maybe you say, well, the text isn't so important here, what's really important is the sound of tape or whatever, that's a problem instantly. So the institution itself in this country is making those decisions for um, how people listen. Falling into the bad blocks, blowing into the blood, falling into the blowing into the Even within a much more informed group of people, you say sound art and people still don't know what you mean. There are a number of problems. One is that there hasn't been a really good history written. It's a practice that's kind of slippery, and that's maybe part of why it's, on the other hand, good that there isn't an authoritative history written about it. And the other thing is that there haven't been really famous sound artists, whereas there have been very famous sound artists who turned into performance artists, like Laurie Anderson or like Chris Burden. Laurie Anderson is a great example because this is a person who could have put sound art on the map, but instead probably put performance art on the map to a lot of people. I had no trouble finding the Dixie Pig. It was a long, low building, encrusted with neon. No cars. It would be good for other artists to come into the mix. Like, for instance, you can get really interesting feedback from people who only work in visual arts. The dog goes with us, I told him. It's like, oh, you're the sound. I've heard about you, but they don't leave that sphere of, you know, what's going on in their little sphere, and they hear about other things, but they may not necessarily interact with that circle of artists. He got out of bed and went to the window. He opened it all the way. Then he leaned out and looked, and the street was empty. In bed again, he closed his eyes and kept them closed, and finally fell asleep. So that was a piece that um, I recorded. Thanks. I came to Chicago last year to um, to participate in a festival called the Outer Ear Festival, which is having its second um, appearance here in Chicago, I think in a couple of weeks. It's put on by the Experimental Sound Studio. And um, while I was here, between a roundtable and a radio interview, I had four days, and so I scrambled around and I interviewed all these other people who were doing sound art. I, I felt like I had come home because I didn't have to explain to anybody what it is that I do. And this piece explains to everybody what it is that we do. And um, it was a real thrill to have all the response to it on the Transom uh, website. And one of the salient arguments that went on on that website was, where should this work 
appear? How should this work appear? And there was this argument between one person who said, well, if you want to do this kind of work, you should get up and do a national show. And there were many of us who responded and said, and who's going to pay for it? <laughs> and so there were these, these arguments back and forth or discussions back and forth. Some of them got fairly heated, actually. And then there were side arguments and side shoots that went off. And um, I thought it was very interesting uh, to question where should this work go, who should present it, who's going to fund it, and... Um, you know, those kinds of questions. And so I was pretty pleased when Weekend Edition picked it up because then there was this wide audience. You know, even my mother could hear this. So um, it, was, it was pretty extraordinary. Hi there, just parking in to let you know we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with the rest of this session. You're listening to Chicago's Progressive Radio Adventures. This American life, I'm show about all the unseen. Are you tired of endlessly searching for good radio stories? Or maybe feeling overwhelmed by the amount of podcasts filling up your feed? This is Radio Lab. I'm Jad Abunran. Well, worry no more, because Third Coast has you covered. I'm Gwen Maxi, host of Third Coast's podcast, Resound. Resound is a themed, hour-long mix of the best in radio and podcasting from the past and present. We've been carefully curating nothing but the best stories from around the world since 2004, and we have a treasure trove of amazing audio. Each episode is bound to have something to fit every listener's individual taste. Personal stories, essays, sound art, mystery stories that twist and turn, and other audio experiments. So stop searching. Subscribe to ReSound today and treat yourself to the finest stories ever told in sound. Your ears will thank us. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi. Uh, just, a, just awakening the question of what risk is in my own mind, and I'm sort of thinking, yeah, it's really, it's got to be risky to create a program like Scott created, like a program in search of a, of a, of a context. So here's this thing, and you don't really know what, if it's going to be out or not. Yeah, Larry's see, working on that. That's, but that's, a, yeah, I can yeah. see that that's a risk of it, and recognize that as such. And and and, but I, what I don't understand is, is it a risk, to how much of a risk, I guess, is it to put a program on the air, as you were saying, um, that 
comes as a surprise, or is that, in fact, an avoidance of risk, really, at the heart of it, if to putting a program on that doesn't have a context? I mean, how important it is to create a program like you've done that here's this program where we're going to take risks and at least you've prepared people and in the contents of that people come and they're ready and, and they're open or not or whatever, but you've created the context. But is it actually taking a risk or is it kind of in a way a way not to take the risk to put it on uh, RO, uh, randomly? So it's just a question to think about. Um, and I'm wondering for myself and for all of us if, if the risk is that we all take or not is the risk we take not to repeat ourselves, you know, not to do to, to, to work five years from now or that, that doesn't sound like something. Or each time I sit down and, and do my work, am I taking uh, a risk at all um, to reinvent how I do my work? I, I can go backwards and answer your, your, first, your second question first. Um, when I sit down to do work, um, I'm always asking myself, is, how is this different from the piece before? Um, I brought a CD of 10 p different pieces, and they're all, I, I mean, I can think about the, the time, the, the, the chunk of my life, and what I was thinking, and how it's different, and how it's evolved. And um, uh, this year is the risk to try to get my work on conventional national public radio, and, and I'm succeeding. I mean, certainly not paying my rent <laughs> on, on the few pieces that I've got on. But um, so I constantly sit down as a, as a sound artist, as a radio producer, and think, how is this different from the piece before? How can I challenge myself to do something unusual? Um, always thinking, where is it going to go? Um, and it's not always going to go on a, it's not always going to be purchased. It's, uh, you know, I ran into Susan Stone from KPFA who said, oh, a piece you sent me a year ago, I forgot to tell you, we aired it this week. And I was thrilled. I was absolutely thrilled. I mean, that's a huge compliment. I'm not going to get any money from that, and it doesn't matter. Um, it's that continuum of, you know, you sell some work, you don't sell some other work. If you're going to work, if you're going to do really unusual work, you find the few outlets that are out there, and, uh, and the rest of it you hand out. It's completely hand out. I can just speak to that for a sec. Certainly um, that... It's come up with our program. Is this has this kind of work been ghettoized? Because it is in one little chunk. It's a 15-minute slot. Everyone knows what it is, um, and that's basically where the buck stops. And I think um, I think it's a good question. And I think that's where it somewhat overlaps with what you just said, Joan. It comes down to approach and uh, approach and ability to look for options in terms of format and presentation, um, and try to apply some of this. Uh, this kind of thinking to more mainstream coverage, like news and current affairs coverage. And I think that's sort of where, as an organization, we're starting to move. Um, uh, CBC Radio is in terms of trying to open up our thinking to what we do every day and not simply keep it off in these little pockets of programming here and there. Um, and I think the only way you can do that is if you start doing that kind of work and start opening up, as I say, the possibilities. Not only is it stimulating as a producer to have all this, all this, again, I use the word possibility when you're confronted with a story, but then it gives you more tools, right? More tools in your little toolbox to apply to any kind of storytelling. And I think that's how 
it becomes even much more of a risky venture. I mean, I think from a programming standpoint, the fact that our bosses decided to put our program in what's considered the prime time listening slot is a huge risk that they took. Um, and to their credit, I do have to say that they have stood, they've stood behind the show. You know, I've got a file full of letters to the ombudsman, you know, about our program. It has never touched us. It's never affected what we do. It's never been raised as a a problem or something we should just keep in the back of our mind, nothing. So um, we sort of talked about if you're going to spread this approach farther than programs or individual items, that kind of organizational support, true organizational support, not just lip service to innovation and creativity is key. And I think that's where it sort of breaks beyond. And then it really is absolute risk as a, as a broadcaster, I would say. Um, that was actually... Part of my question is just on a very practical level, how do you get the senior management to agree to, to it's 15 minutes every day, Monday through Friday? It's close, Monday through Thursday. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I gather there was already an interest from producers to do this kind of work, but to actually get senior management to give up 15 minutes a day I mean, it's not even, you know, I work for NPR, and yeah. it just won't happen. Well, the thing <laughs> you know? is, for us, it wasn't even to get them to do it. It was a priority. It was a priority that was set at that level, and then the program was generated out of it. That's, in, in that sense, it's extraordinary, right? So never mind support for complaints and support for, you know, that's all minor <laughs> in comparison. So really, uh, in terms of risk in broadcasting, public broadcasting, this program really is a testament to that, um, just by its very existence. Now, what's interesting, and I'll, I'll be quick because I know Scott wants to say something, um, in terms of reception to the program as a whole, and this is reception to the kind of work that we do, and thinking in new ways, like not just, I don't mean shock value stuff, right? I just mean thinking about programming and, and stories and presentation in new ways. We, over the course, and since I've been with the show since the start, I've been able to track this. Um, in, reception from the audience is only just one part of it. Reception from our colleagues inside the corporation, just as hard to manage and to overcome. Um, and so that's something that is also well worth keeping in mind, that when you try to do something different, there are all these little boxes it gets put into, right? Oh, you must be the affirmative action show. Since you're trying to get new voices, that must be code for colored people. You know, I had to combat that a lot in the first couple of years of the show. I'd have producers calling me from across the country. I met this African guy at a party. I think he'd be great for your show. You know, and it's like, <laughs> sure, maybe. <laughs> you know, what's the story? You know, and that's always what we have tried to do is, what's the story? Um, what is the story? And you cannot think innovation, risk, cre creative treatment until the story is sound. And so that's something you have to tackle as well as internal and external. I'm, I'm going to hold one more question, have Scott respond, and then we're going to also go to some more tape, and we'll get back to um, your question. All right. My response is what Jim was saying about context and story. Does the story need a context? I think they do, because context is how we interpret meaning. Uh, for instance, words spoken in one context will have a different meaning than the same words spoken in another context or environment. My question I think about is, does the story ha have to have a point? Um, that's up for debate, I think, um, in terms of the uh, conventional dramatic structure. Uh, the, I, I think some stories can work without a point if they're held together by tension or something similar to tension, like, for instance, music. Music doesn't always have a point, but it works anyway. Um, that's about it. 
you want to play that other tape? Okay, this second story, uh, it's an old story. It's a classic story. It was uh, produced in 1980 or 81 by Larry Massett called A Trip to the Dentist. Has anybody heard this story? How many people have heard this? (laughs) All right. All right, the reason why I want to play it is because, uh, well, it's one of my favorite stories of all time, but at the Early Conference in 1983, uh, Robert Siegel, who was then the news and information director at NPR, very intelligent man, I respect him quite a bit, but he made the statement that all things considered would not be playing Larry Massett's trip to the dentist in the future. Uh, I think that was a significant and important statement, and I, th- I wanted to play the tape. It's 14 minutes long. Uh, I will cut it off at a point where it sort of becomes clear what's going on, what, where the problem is, where I think Robert Siegel was having a problem. <laughs> I wish he were here. This is Larry's first story. <clears throat> and I asked him if he thought he was taking a risk, and he said, no, I was just trying to do the first thing that came into my head. The dentist, a living nightmare. For a long time, I'd felt the cavities growing in my mouth, spreading from tooth to tooth. They hurt, with that insidious, narrow pain peculiar to bad teeth. I knew I was on the road to total decay. But, like many other people, I was too afraid of the dentist to do anything about it. Finally, a friend of mine asked me to try her dentist. His name was Dr. Katz, and he had an office downtown in Washington, D.C. She guaranteed it wouldn't hurt. She swore it wouldn't hurt. She swore that it wouldn't hurt. I asked her why it wouldn't hurt, but she only smiled and said, You'll find out. The hardest thing is to get started. I, I guess since I haven't been in a long time, I probably have uh, one or two cavities. I don't know. It's not as bad as you've imagined it to be. Okay, we're going to be putting a lead apron over you right now. That's so as to protect you from any scatter radiation. So uh, let's just go ahead and get a few films. Okay, I need you to bring your head forward slightly. Okay, and I'm also going to need one finger so you can hold the film in place. Don't put very much pressure on the film because if you do, the film tends to slide and I won't get what I'm looking you for. Get a picture okay? of my finger, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. No thumb something. Okay, here we go. Okay, look away. I wasn't afraid of x rays. The only problem I had with x rays was that they eventually got developed. With an old-fashioned dentist, that could take days, maybe a week with any luck. But this dentist was very efficient. Okay, we've got your x-rays now. I just want to go over this with you to give you an idea of what I look for in an x-ray. Those are my teeth, eh? Every one of them, yeah. Now, decay, you can see on this little picture, on this picture here, you can see that you have this sort of eaten out area 
looks like a sort of grayish spot. Yeah, it'll show up as a dark spot on an X-ray. Okay, let's go ahead and chart your mouth and look look for the K. Okay, open wide for me. Okay. Okay, we have a buckle in number six, buckle in number seven, number eight, mesial, and the buckle in number nine, buckle in number ten, buckle in number eleven, twelve, thirteen. Gee, I'm sorry to give you all of this bad news. I have a lot of cavities. Bro. Yeah, unfortunately you do. Uh, there's a buckle in thirteen. It's an occlusal in 18, 17, which is your lower right, lower left uh, wisdom tooth, also has the K in it. And I would say the same for number 17 and the number 16, which is your upper left wisdom tooth. And buckle in number 10, 9, 12, 20, 21, 27, 28, 31. There was no hope for it. Years of snacking on candy bars and soft drinks has finally paid off. My friend promised it wouldn't hurt, but my friend wasn't sitting in this chair. The drill and the other instruments of torture were hidden away behind the chair, yet I knew what was going to happen. I could remember stories of people who had bitten their dentist and run screaming from the office. Maybe there would be a fire. Hurricane. Okay, I'm leaning you back right now, and before <coughs> I go ahead with the local anesthetic, uh, as uh, we discussed before, I'd like to give you some nitrous oxide. And the way that's administered is by this little nasal mask that I'll be placing over your nose. And I don't want you to hyperventilate or breathe any differently than you are now. Just breathe nice and easy through your nose, and uh, you can just put your head back and I'll put this over. It takes a few minutes to start feeling any effect, and it'll be a very calming feeling. Uh, you may feel some tingling in your toes and your fingers. You may have an, a nice overall warm feeling. It's a type of feeling you get after you've had a glass of wine. You feel comfortable and mellow. And like, you know, you can sit down and just relax. That's the type of feeling I hope you'll experience with this today. Is that comfortable, by the way, mm -hmm. that nasal yeah, mask? Okay, good. I think this is one of the very few legal highs around, so enjoy it. I feel slightly stoned. Good. That's how I want you to feel. Okay, you're in luck. We sharpened all our needles today, and uh, I'm only kidding. <laughs> Most people say, well, are you going to give me Novocaine? And I usually say yes. Novocaine hasn't been used on a routine dental basis for quite a long time. The drug right now is called Xylocaine. Go. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
There's a transition here because it was produced in two sections. I'm giving you a combination of about 30% nitrous oxide and 70% uh, oxygen. I feel fine. I understand why it's called laughing gas. Uh, Peggy, do you have another coffee? I think you remember Peggy, my trusty assistant. Peggy had a toothache today. Isn't that unbelievable? A receptionist having a toothache in a dental office. How does it feel? It's better now. <laughs> You're not going to feel this, are you? No, I did, I did not. What was it? Well, I just... I also said the magic words to get you numb. Oh, I can't tell you that. Does that feel pretty numb right now? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Okay, I'm gonna get started now. If you feel any sensitivity at all, by all means, let me know. Oh, stop. Okay. Maybe I could feel the drill, and maybe I couldn't. I didn't care. I was walking down a pleasant tree-lined street. There were children playing on the lawns, laughter in the air. Everyone said hello. There was Gladys Knight in the Pips, Albert Einstein, Mozart, and Ruff, the talking dog, the only dog ever to swim the English Channel. taken from the pillows of sleeping children. The angels were exchanging the teeth for quarters. A lot of beans. Pink beans. Different kind of beans. Snap beans. Cheese. Tomatoes. Dried apples. All kinds of jellies and jams. And there was my grandmother. Cucumber pickles. Sauerkraut, ham, backbone, ribs, sausage, corn, tomatoes, beans. The story goes on. Uh, he comes out of the anesthesia back to the dentist's office. And so, although I've never talked to Robert Siegel about this, I believe his problem with this story is that it begins as in a real, realism. The form is realism, standard documentary realism form. My tooth hurt. I went to the dentist. Um, and then it goes into surrealism and then back to realism again. And... I think Robert Siegel probably liked this story. I think he probably enjoyed it and uh, when he heard it. And 
Robert Siegel's also a very good producer. One of my favorite stories I've ever heard on the radio, he did. But at this time, it was 1983, NPR had lost a lot of money or they were in debt and they'd let go about a third of their staff and they were reorganizing their news department, making changes. And he said that all things considered would not play this story as an example of how the news department was going to be changing. Uh, I don't have any problem with that shift in form. I don't think other people do either. And I think under the circumstances, given what the story's about, given what happened, uh, it was the most appropriate way to tell that story. It was not only fair and accurate, I think it was even an objective way to approach it, more so than if you didn't go into the surrealism and say, well, I was given laughing gas, which is a chemical that has this effect on the brain and produces these results. That would not have been as good a way to uh, report that story. And uh, let's move on. I, we can talk about it later if you want. We have just about 15 minutes left, so um, let's move to the present day, 18 years later. Give us a, another uh, out front piece. Sure. Um, there's only time to play one more chunk, so I'm going to try to sum up what my point is. And I think my point is, in terms of our program, we're just not afraid to try stuff. Um, yes, we've had support to do that. Many of our colleagues haven't across the country, and so we have ended up being in quite a privileged position, and we're, we're quite lucky, and we know it. Um, things are changing at CBC, and really what it's coming down to is not doing out fronts across our programming schedule, but in terms of approach and thinking about doing radio in new ways and not being afraid to try stuff. And that's something that we've been doing from the start. And really what's cool about making programming that takes risks or tries to push things is that it changes the way you work. It changes the way you work as a producer and the way you work as a group and with other producers. And that's really one of the things I cherish the most about being on this show is our process of work is different from that of our colleagues as a result. Um, because we don't spend a lot of time writing off stuff or saying something is wrong or it doesn't fit or it doesn't work. We just don't have time for that. We need to explain if something from a story point of view isn't going to work and we need to be able to articulate it as responsible producers. And it's a learning process for us. But we actually aren't, we just want to jump in and do it and not know how it's going to turn out at the end. And that really is the best way um, from our perspective to push ahead. And so I'm just going to play a chunk. It's on that tuba CD. So it's that other one. Um, and if you, if you have any interest in our show, you can go to our website, cbc.ca slash outfront. Uh, one word, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Every program we've ever done is on our site, and it's very easy to get to. And as I say, there's so much, and there's so, so much variety. Um, we do everything, drama, poetry, music, comedy, you know, performance, documentary. So there's the range is huge. And that, again, is the those are the possibilities that are opened up when you don't stay, when you're not stuck in one format. Um, this is a piece, and this is often what happens. We got a proposal from a woman named Karen Bulmer, who's a tuba player. And as a woman, she was wanting to do a piece about being a female tuba player and how it's often not the instrument that one would associate in her circles as uh, uh, something that a woman would play. So she had the desire to go out and meet and interview a number of other... Um, I wonder if I have her thing here. I just want to refer to a couple of lines from her. It'll, it'll give you a sense of where where we went with it with her. But um, 
as she wanted to do. She wanted to talk to, uh, you know, a number of different tuba players. She wanted to explore the issue, perhaps get some academic opinion in there. <laughs> and, it, and it went on. And what the way in which she described the tuba, the relationship between a musician and his or her instrument is of necessity profoundly intimate. I am playing the straight woman to my tuba. I am female what, in what's traditionally a man's game. Uh, my destiny has been sealed with this instrument. Um, there's a delicious unconventionality to it. Uh, this is very much a marriage of my particular personality with that of the tuba. Um, so these are the kinds of ideas she threw out at us, and here's how the piece ended up. I'll just play a chunk of it. It's 13 minutes long, which is how long our show is. I'll just play a chunk so you can get a sense of where we went with that. This is Out Front. New voices. Her voices. My voice. Out Front. New visions. My vision. Out Front. Outside. Outer limits. Out of the ordinary. Out of bounds. Out there. Out Front. Hello, and welcome to Out Front. I'm Karen Bulmer in London, Ontario, and today I have a very long-winded tale to tell you. It's about me and my tuba. It's, well, it's a love story. Most people can't imagine how a young woman could fall head over heels for a tuba. Seems obvious enough to me. For better or worse, and perhaps more disturbing, richer or poorer, I have made the tuba my life's partner. We were from different worlds, you and I. I sat at the front of the band. You were at the back. Me and my gals in the flute section, we had no use for you and your oompa. We were polite, respectful, well-behaved. You, on the other hand, were noisy and unkempt. And yet, sometimes I had the feeling your eyes were on me. I'll never forget that day in grade 7 at Stony Brook Public School when Mrs. Lismore hoisted your sorry, dented frame overhead for all to see, asking, Would anyone like to try this thing? As you undoubtedly recall, Tage Crookshank was quick to volunteer. He lumbered up to the front of the class amid the cackles and grunts of his fellow back-road dwellers. Typical. We braced ourselves, and with a wicked grin, he brought you to his lips. Well, thank you very much, Tage. That was truly inspired. Anyone else? said Mrs. Lismore. Anyone? For reasons I will never fathom... I raised my hand and asked if I could give it a go. There was something compelling about you. Sure, you were kind of beat up. Your bell was all crunched, and some of your tubing was held together with bits of duct tape. And you smelled a bit funny, like musty old brass. But maybe you just needed a little love. Or maybe I needed a little adventure. So, I went to the front of the classroom and took you in my arms. My lips met yours for the first time. Fireworks? Not exactly. I did feel something. But I dismissed it. I chalked it up to puberty and decided to stick with the flute. 
Three years later, in grade ten, I still played flute. I was pretty good at it too. In fact, I'd forgotten all about you. But we didn't have a tuba player in our band, and every day as music class ended, Mr. Williams would chant, "Think tuba, think tuba." It started to haunt me. Walking to school, think tuba, think tuba. In my sleep, think tuba, think tuba. I tried to concentrate, but all I could do was. Finally, I went to Mr. Williams and told him, "All right, I'll play the tuba." At first, I was drawn to your rugged exterior. You were so very, very burly, but I soon discovered that you were also quite complex. I explored your network of tubing with the tenderness and devotion that only an adolescent girl can muster. I oiled your valves and polished you. I learned how to manipulate your many slides, and you responded with a purity of pitch and tone that sent chills. Oh. Spit valve. So, what could well, have been a fairly traditional piece um, wasn't, um, and didn't cost us anything. wasn't a resource issue. It was a matter of thinking and approach and perspective, um, pulling right from her own words what she sent to us, which was her inspiration, which was, you know, my tuba is my lover, and it gets better actually. So if you want to hear more, you know, you can you can pull it off our site and listen. I'm just going to、uh, play another just、uh, short piece, just again to demonstrate difference in approach, and then we can go to、uh, questions. This is out front. New voices, our voices, my voice, out front. You know, it's been a week. Out of the ordinary. Out of bounds. Out there. This. Is outside. Rejected. Turned down. Outcast. I'm upset. Outcry. Outclass. Outlaws. In, In your face. face. Hi, and、um, welcome to one, two, three. Outside. outside. We're the organization for the upheaval of the totalitarian structures. And the individual destroying empire of the CBC. You tell them, Claire. Otherwise、yes. known as outside. outside. We are the rejects of out front, and we reject the whole notion of rejection. Because who is out front to say our voices shouldn't be heard? Amen.、It's、true. We um. That's Lewis. 
Hi. Uh, Fabio. Hi. And I'm Claire. Um, we all submitted proposals to Outfront, and Outfront has attempted to silence our voices. No way. No, no. So um, we have taken over Outfront in order to tell our stories and return the public airwaves to their rightful owner. Yeah, that's me. Uh no, Fabio. I think uh, I think Claire was talking actually about uh, Canada, as, well, as represented by us. Well, I'm Canadian, and I live in this country, and I am part of us. You know, so let me just tell my story, okay? First, okay, hmm? okay. okay. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, great. Okay. Did I tell you guys how phenomenal my proposal was, and to think that out front would reject me? Me, Fabio Fernandez, and his phenomenal proposal is just insane. I want the people of Canada to hear my voice and to hear what my proposal was about. Well, basically, my objective was, well, let me see. What was my objective? Hello um, down there. Well, you know, hey, is someone calling my name? What are you young people doing downstairs? I'm talking. Hide the oh. mic. Uh, nothing, Ma. Uh, don't come down here. It's kind of strange that you're down in the stuffy basement when you can be outside playing. It's so beautiful outside. Okay, Ma. Can I know what you're doing? Um, nothing. I don't know. I think young people are in too much. Okay, okay. You don't even so that was actually, again, just to speak to different production, but they really were rejects of our show, uh, who all proposed the same, they all want to do the same piece, A Day in the Life of a Stand-Up Comic, and we said no. <laughs> it wasn't enough. And so we said, but if you really want to do something, get to know each other. We brought them together. They didn't know each other beforehand and said, do us a piece on rejection. And so that's what they came up with, a pirate radio broadcast. And it goes on. And, and those are all the real people that really is his mom. And, you know, because we don't use actors or anything uh, when, we're, when we're doing these kinds of pieces. So, again, just speaking to conceptually, um, coming up with new ways of doing things is, is not only inspiring for the producers, but for, for those who are creating our items as well. So, um, We can play one more. I think I'll play. I'll just quickly go do a very brief excerpt of the piece about silence and what it was like to, to uh, somebody, oh, I thought she had a question. Um, this is, no, I think she's talking to somebody. <laughs> um, this is track number 10, Dave. And um, this is a piece that's on the Third Coast website, and it's part of a much longer piece. It's a triptych of, of three themes. And this is um, the last part of it where two people are talking about um, a time in their life when they practice silence. They've known each other for 20 years. They actually got married, and um, the guy was still silent for the whole first year of their marriage. And um, when I heard that story, I mean, like I said in, in the Radio Sound Art piece, when I heard that story, I had to do something with it. There was no way that I could just leave it there, particularly um, about silence. How do you talk about silence, um, either when you're in it or, or past? So let's just have a couple of minutes of that. He would sit in the corner and he would read and he was silent and he was uh, for all intents and purposes supposedly a monk 
And I was so I left him alone, and he left me alone. He ignored me, and um, I didn't speak with him because I figured that's what you do with people who are monks is, you know, talk to them, especially if they're choosing to be silent. I went on for a long time. I'd see him every evening in the front of his kitchen reading in the corner, and I ignored him, and he ignored me. But at least I didn't antagonize him. But actually, he wasn't ignoring me at all. I was... Pretty good, later. partly because I was very silent. interested in me that whole time. And also because I, I just couldn't get involved in something I knew I couldn't finish, you know. Um, although there was this very peculiar incident that happened where he, I was in the farmhouse kitchen, so, yeah. I was having a conversation so with another and, uh, person, and Ohm interrupted. That trouble. I had absolutely in the middle of the conversation, which I didn't appreciate, and wrote on his board something like, what would you say if I asked you to marry and me? so the first thing I ever remember saying to her, outside of something that might have been strictly... That was literally the first thing he ever said to me. Was, uh, what would you say if I asked you to marry me? And I thought this guy is, is like, not only rude, but he's nuts. And I told him so. I got really pissed off at him. I wanted to see what would happen. She freaked out. But those were literally the first words. And so that he, uh, she was uh, read from him for three days or so. She would uh, she would just not even get close. And she had. I mean, her eyes got big like a deer caught in the headlights. I, uh, I can say some pretty outrageous things sometimes. I don't know if you've noticed, days. but uh, <laughs> well, that was one, that was a prime example there. Okay, you can stop that. So um, the piece goes on for about 12 and a half minutes, and what was interesting to me about that piece is um, the acceptance on one level um, on a couple of different, in a couple of different areas, um, the Outer Ear Festival took the piece. They were pleased with it. A couple of other places played it. And then I pitched it to a show called um, The Next Big Thing, which is coming out of WMYC. And I worked with an editor, and it was the first time I had ever revised something very um, closely. And he had me take out that whole first part. That's the first part of the piece. We cut it down to about eight and a half minutes. And when people heard the difference between the two pieces, they said, well... I, I understand for the audience of, of NYC, it's different than, you know, an experimental piece that's going into a festival. Um, you have to think about the audience. And I said, well, I did think about the audience. And I thought that they could handle um, the, the original piece. And some people said that the actual difference between the two pieces is that the guy in the second, in the revision, sounded less interesting. And I found that to be very telling about um, taking risks and, and doing risky work. So anybody have any questions? We're pretty much out of time, but can we grab a question or two? To go to the first question that Jim had asked, mm -hmm. I think it's a six of one, half dozen, the other proposition. Yeah, you can promote the stuff, but then you'll have your more traditional audience say, well, I don't want to take a risk. I don't want to hear that. If you just drop it in the way you did at KUSP, you might grab somebody by their ears, and then they've got to figure out where they are, what's going on, and you might drag them in. Some people will be turned off. Other people will go with you. Um, I agree with the proposition of the idea that the audiences probably, or a lot of them, are far ahead of us in what they're willing to tolerate 
and listened to than what we're what a lot of us have been willing here to for to put on the air mm -hmm. at our own station i'm trying to look for ways to bring things off of websites we're promoting transom.org on our home page i'd like us to be promoting other websites like hearing uh hearing voices etc i like audio promos that we can drop in on our airwaves to tell people to go to these websites uh just different ways to get people excited about audio uh, so that's just one area. But the, the one question I have, I'm a big fan of Outfront. I've been listening almost from the beginning. I, I, I'd like to think that I've heard just about every program that's come out. Um, what I'm more interested in is the back office stuff. How do you get these folks? I don't, because I, I listen to a lot of CBC radio, I don't hear it being promoted on the air, send us your proposal. So how do you go about the business of finding these people? Do they all have their own equipment? Do you supply them with equipment? You've told a little story about bringing some people together. I mean, all this back office stuff about how to make this work, mm -hmm. I'm interested in to do it on a microcosmic level in the city we serve. Mm -hmm. So if you could talk a well, little I'll, about I'll, that. I'll do it really quickly, but we do, we do ask for submissions. That's all we do, as a matter of fact. We do some outreach. Uh, we have a very small core staff, but we, after every program at the end of that show, for example, the Tuba show, she would have come on and said, if you've got an idea for the show, get in touch. And the thing is, here's, here's what's interesting in terms of reception, audience reception to this kind of stuff. We're inundated. We're absolutely inundated. We can't keep up with the number of proposals we, that we have. So it's a fact. Um, if we are being rejected for the kind of programming that we do, we certainly don't see it in terms of the number of people who want to be a part of it. And again, keep in mind, these are not uh, full-time radio producer wannabes, right? These are people with houses, kids, day jobs, uh, you know, who want to try their hand at it. Uh, we look at but somewhere anywhere between 20 and 40 pitches a week. Uh, for four shows a week. So that to me says something. But that's, that's what we do. So people come to us. Um, and we, we lend them equipment if they don't have it already. Uh, in some cases, I had a couple of examples. We won't have time to hear them, but I, I put it right back at them if they are, if it's not convenient, if they can't get in to work with us. And I, we, we use new technology. I encourage them to go and learn how to edit, to be able to borrow their own equipment. We teach them how to use equipment over the phone. We produce them over the phone. We do whatever it takes to help them get their story. And the more that they can do on their own, as far as I'm concerned, and learning, the better the piece is, because in fact we get a, a, an even fresher product than we would have had our hands been in it. Um, it's just a, we, had a, we had a 55 year old guy come to us who wanted to do a piece, but he lived in a small town and it just wasn't going to be convenient for him to show up and be able to work with us. So I said, do you have any interest in digital editing? Went to our website, downloaded a program, taught himself how to use it, borrowed equipment from a local station, figured out how to use that, constructed a piece, sent it to me on CD, got help to burn the CD and sent it, and I stuck it on. And it's, it's a great piece. So um, that's where we're moving more and more um, because the product is good, not not as a cost-cutting mean or anything, but because it's interesting and it allows us more options. So, But that's basically how we work. Um, but we do help people editorially um, off the top. Uh, we, we really are the bulk of our work is what is the story, and we spend a lot of time figuring that out. What is your motivation for telling this story? That's key to our show. People don't report on stuff for us. This is a personal storytelling venue where it doesn't have to be their own saga, but it's something that they've got a connection to or a perspective on or somehow have access to, and that's what we, that's what we do. I hope that answers what you're looking for. Actually, that was one of my questions. Mm -hmm. Can I just ask a short follow-up to that? So you, so you put it on, back on the people. I work at WBEZ, which is really supportive. We don't have the, is management going to accept this? We, we can do it. But we really um, feel very, very constrained by how much time it takes. It's like 
hey, you know, this mm-hmm. conference is great. I talked to a lot of people last night, but when are we going to be able to make the time to do it? Because we still have to do the hour show tomorrow, the hour and a half mm-hmm. show tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And you guys have 15 minutes, which I bet, I wonder sometimes, does that feel like, oh, what are we going to oh, do it'll take, tomorrow? Oh, it takes longer because we do a lot, a lot of our uh, productions are very high quality. And we spend a lot of time on mix, especially when you're experimenting with tone and texture. Um, you're, we're pushing it pretty far. So there's no doubt it's time-consuming and working with new people and new voices and training them on, you know, never mind basic radio stuff, but story development, writing, scene setting, all these kinds of things, giving them those options to tell their story. Definitely. <laughs> it's not it's not an easy prospect. Um, so 15 minutes is good for that kind of work, having to do one story a day. So. That's it for today. Thank you for downloading the Third Coast Pocket Conference. We'll be back in a few weeks with brand new sessions from the 2017 Third Coast Conference. But if you can't wait till then, you can get sage advice and other phonic wisdom from this year's conference by following us on Facebook and Twitter as it happens November 9th to the 11th. Also, you can listen to most every session from conferences past at thirdcoastfestival.org. All right, that's it. Speak to you in a few. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.